Welcome back to FinTech Business Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with David Breer, CEO at Challenger Consultancy 11FS. David has a long career in the banking and digital transformation space, including at UK banks Halifax and Lloyd's, as well as core banking and tech provider Infosys. David, thank you so much for joining me today. For listeners who might not be familiar with 11FS, if that's possible, uh, can you share a little bit about the origin story and what the group does? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, it's it's amazing having seven and a half years into the business, we still keep bumping into people who haven't heard of us or or have heard of us, but they're like, you're the podcast guys, right? You do that thing. <laughs> like, uh, but um, yeah, so thanks very much for having me on. Um, 11FS, we started as really a bit of a frustration, really. The frustration was actually that people weren't doing things in the way that we sort of thought they could be done. I often say people are, are pretty bad at describing what they would want, but they're very descri- good at describing what they don't want. So, <laughs> you know, we got together as a group of individuals and described the organization that we didn't want to work with and and really tried to do everything we could to to create the type of organization that we would want to work with. And, you know, that means that actually it's not really just about what we're doing. Uh, it's about the way in which we're doing it. Um, you know, fast forward seven and a half years, we've built full banks around the world, things like Metal, things like Mox uh, with Standard Chartered. We've done it in Singapore, Saudi Arabia, the US, all over the place, uh, working with organizations fundamentally on the same thing, which is that our thesis really is that people don't really understand digital. Um, they understand their previous form factors of what they've done to make themselves really successful and often fail to realize that actually the change that they really need to change is how they manage change, which is probably saying change far too many times in a sentence. And I'm currently very aware of that. But but actually, that's the main point of what we do. So whether it's changing culture, understanding really how to make small team sports work within organizations, um, that's pretty much what most of our life has been taken up doing. Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting, and I always need to caveat that I've actually only directly worked full time for for one bank, which I think you know which one it is. Um, but but it it raises the question of you know what is banking writ large or a specific institution's core competency or differentiator? And I mean, to be fair, that's going to be different for different institutions, right? A you know, Chase or City or somebody that has, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees, you know, is probably going to look quite different than a small community bank, you know, that maybe has a handful of branches and, you know, wants to get into something like banking as a service, but doesn't have sort of a background or a pedigree in uh, technology, doesn't have staff that does product management and and software engineering. So it's, you know, I think the the area areas that you you know have worked in continue to work in are are really interesting to think about how do you identify you know if you're going into a potential client you know what is it that that you want to do and then what are the pieces that you need to do internally versus you know partnering or externally to, to get to that conclusion hundred percent yeah I mean it it's almost kind of getting people back to really what they're uh, I mean, I always sort of joke, it's like any 10-step program, the first step is admitting there's a problem, right? Uh, and actually, if you can get them to admit that there's a problem, because actually the thing that they're trying to achieve, they've tried a few different ways and and failed to achieve. Um, I mean, the, the hard part 
uh, what do they say the you know the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome right actually i think when you start looking at every organization on the planet and i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's uh different for community banks or big banks or whatever or fintechs really i mean we're we're very short-sighted because the cycles are, are working at different horizons you know hsbc existed for 300 and something years and you know, Revolut existing for like seven years or eight years or something. I mean, it, we just forget that HSBC started with a absolute purpose, as did Barclays, as did UBS, as did any community bank on the planet, started with a, a very concentrated purpose to solve a customer's problem. And it's it's only through, you know, wild success for 200 or 300 years that they, they sort of forgot a little bit of what that purpose was and and therefore what the core competencies were to to fundamentally deliver on that purpose and as you say the 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 sort of evolutionary steps that we've seen with the rise of the internet and technology and everything that goes with it um but actually if you know what you're going and you know what it takes to get there you're probably going to be in a good place i I think the challenge comes when people change their aspiration you know they want to be a digital you know the 10 years ago we saw everybody announce they were going to be a tech company and the reality is 10 years later, none of them are attack companies, you know. So understanding to your point, the the rituals, the rhythms, the skill sets, the, the belief system to create and ship brilliant software, fundamentally different than the skill sets that you needed 20 years ago. Uh, and really, we're still in that period where I don't think really people understand what digital actually is. Um, and getting them to admit that there's that problem is, you know, usually the start of a, uh, a pretty fruitful partnership. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, you mentioned the media piece, which I'm going to get to a bit later, consulting piece, but you also have two very distinct sort of products that you offer, which I think are quite interesting. Pulse, which is a benchmark of onboarding journeys. I think you have like close to 6,000 different onboarding journeys, which is amazing. Um, and Foundry, which if I'm understanding it correctly, and, and please you know correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of like a modular financial services operating system. You know, as you as you went through these you know thousands of different onboarding journeys, are there any specific trends that emerged? You know, whether it's like across segment, you know, incumbent versus challenger or by geography. I mean, what sort of takeaways have you had from from you know the chance to analyze such a broad array of products yeah uh, so pulse uh, you know the the original sort of thought for pulse i mean we call it pulse to allow people to put their finger on the pulse of the industry um we did it for two reasons really which is uh designers are really fancy and they love a blank sheet of paper but actually the design patterns that are out there that have delivered amazing things in one geography might be applicable to others or really understanding what the regulator thinks is okay in different spaces because it's out there in the hands of customers you know banking is increasingly experiential Uh, and actually i mean it's a lot broader than just onboarding you know kyc and payments and you know pfm and like everything any fintech most organizations talk about you know WeChat and Revolut and Monzo, like they're the boogeyman, you know, they've never actually seen them, but they're still scared of them. So I think demystifying some of those things to to really see them is a is a great thing. Really, we build products for ourselves that actually we, our product managers, our researchers, you know, everybody in our business uses Pulse. And actually, if it's good enough for us, you'll find big, gigantic organizations around the world use it in the same way that we use it as well. And I mean, it's great because we've had, you know, not only big banks, but people like Monzo and Nubank and, you know, these guys using it at real scale as well, which is exciting. Foundry was a very similar piece as well. I mean, 
we're, we're creatures of um, habit and actually, you know, repetition can be a little bit boring, right? So after building 12 uh, banks for people, being in a situation where we just do the same infrastructural implementation over and over again, actually, how do we build a product that makes us quicker at doing those things so we can get to market faster? Foundry is a, it's an integration orchestration engine. Um, having spent a bit of time at Gartner looking at uh, more uh, uh, magic quadrants and hype cycles than anybody really should ever have the painful duty to look at, then actually the core banking space is just not in a good place. Um, what people call core banking and actually the problem that they point to within their organization uh, isn't really a core banking problem. Uh, you know, big fan of the things that people like Thought Machine are doing, but, but actually most of the problem sits a lot higher up in the stack. Uh, they're the places that really fundamentally the operating cadence of the business is formed. And really, that's what we're trying to build with uh, with Foundry uh, to really orchestrate a, a different way of operating. Um, we even joke with that. It's, um, you know, big banks procure things like they're getting wed, you know, getting married to them for the rest of their lives. Whereas actually, you know, you know, this great, amazing company will come along 36 months after you've procured something. And that's the one that you want to be working with. So, you know, interoperability and, and being able to orchestrate different things in different ways. Um, really, the task of technology in banks is no longer about can I build anything? It's about can I pull together the best pieces in order to really deliver on the outcomes that I'm looking to deliver? Well, yeah, and I mean, thematically, that goes back to to where we started, which was like, what is your what is your core competency, and where are you differentiating, right? And you know, to be fair, this is you know, it could be a debate at any type of company. It doesn't need to be a banking company or a fintech company of the you know buy versus build versus partner, um, and actually equally applicable to to some of the things you were mentioning about Pulse. It's like I remember you know being at lending companies and working with very very experienced, very talented UX designers. And, and you know, I myself am not a UX designer. All I cared about in the roles I had was conversion rate. Like, can somebody get through this form, in my case, apply for a loan or a credit card or whatever, and actually get that product? Like, frankly, I don't care what it looks like as long as it does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And, you know, frequently it's like, well, why are we trying to reinvent the wheel when you know there are literally thousands of companies that have built application flows or onboarding flows you know not to say that you know it's going to generalize perfectly to a different segment or a different product or a different audience or whatever but it, it can serve as a very good starting point to say like hey here are some you know potentially best in class conventions and i'm getting really into the weeds here but i mean i'm having flashbacks to like, well, the tooltip should be here. And like the place <laughs> say this. And it's like, you know, do you really need to reinvent the wheel on all this stuff or, you know, A, B test this indefinitely forever versus finding something that it's a, that, that's a good starting point and then adapting it appropriately. And of course, validating through, um, you know, whether it's like screen recording tools or, or A, B testing, like this is working the way it should. Yeah. Foundry, I mean, Foundry um, is also quite interesting. I mean, to your point, it's like, particularly for the largest institutions, procurement cycles are so slow. You know, can you have a more flexible framework where, you know, it, it is faster and easier to onboard and do whether it's a proof of concept or, or roll out, you know, new partners, new APIs, I think is is desperately needed in a lot of the establishment banks. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I mean, on the design one, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it, it comes down to like, do you think um, financial services is a, uh, is a utility or is it a, uh, is the experience a point of differentiation, isn't it? And, and actually, I mean, if you look at the, the place that we're in from financial services landscape, uh, I really would say like the, the issue, uh, you know, the point we've got to in evolutionary you know, steps is, it's kind of like we're in this weird, awkward self-service phase where actually people are kind of commoditizing it and forcing it to be a utility, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but if you're going to go down that route, you should follow natural convention, you know, as in, hey, a payments journey is a payments journey, a transfer is a transfer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, statements look like this and da, 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 da. But actually what people have, and we've, I mean, we've seen this and I'm sure you have as well, you know, the the sort of standard design pattern process that people sort of follow is very hands wavy, which means, uh, why can't everything look like Instagram? And like, oh my God, like kids love TikTok. Like, why can't we do something that look? And it's like, because this is financial services and you will ruin everything, you know, like, so, so you've got to kind of bring some practicality to these things. And I think starting from a place that the best has left off is probably a pretty decent place to kind of look at it. Um, I think the future of that can be very different. You know, I think the future of financial services is probably a different picture than where we are today. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into that next. I mean, on the on the foundry side, I'd say, I mean, the interesting thing there is um, the challenge isn't about what right is. Uh, and we've had this, you know, we've had this kind of experience a number of times before building out, like, say, things like mock and metal. And, you know, you go into any gigantic organization and there's not like a whole department of just like stupid people. Do you know what I mean? Like there's like you sort of you can stand by a whiteboard with the CTO and the CIO. And you're broadly talking similar languages. Uh, you know, this is we want to get to an event driven architecture. We want microservice, blah, blah, blah. You know, like it, it all sort of shapes and colors make sense. The challenge is, is not the idea. It's being able to get from where they are to where they want to be. Uh, I think particularly when you're talking about a, uh, you know, a gigantic global organization with like 87 monolithic structures and, you know, operating in 50 countries or whatever, you know, like the complexity of doing that. I mean, you could throw the U.S. banks into that as well, because every state is basically a different country. Right. You know, so, you know, from a regulatory perspective, at least anyway. But so, you know, the complexities of doing that is really significant. Um, but equally, I mean, down at the bottom end as well. I mean, if you look at the the community banks, the uh, the building societies, uh, they have really sort of all of the same problems, but not really the budgets to, to sort of feel like they're solving them. So I, I think it does require you know a different way of thinking and and fundamentally that's why i actually i mean i've been saying this for years but i think fintech is more of a threat in the b2b sense to incumbent providers than it is to the consumer banks in any way shape or form because every slice of operational ability of an organization whether it's onboarding or kyc or kyb or payment flows or you know uh assetization of what, whatever like there's a slice in a b2b sense the problem is, is that it's like an airfix that the banks don't know how to put the glue together with. You know, they they know the model pieces, but they can't put it all together in that way. And really, that's what we're trying to achieve with Foundry is, you know, what's the easiest, quickest way of pulling these things together to to build something that fundamentally, you know, gets in the hands of the customers? Because really, that's the point where this stuff actually matters. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the the. Uh framework i've heard heard from i think you or or your colleagues of like jobs to be done right which is um a pretty standard way of thinking about it is like okay you know you can talk about vendors and you know 
UX and whatever all day. But at the at the end of it, the point is to enable a customer, whether it's a retail customer or business customer, to do some specific task. Uh, and you know that's ultimately like what we're trying to achieve here. Definitely, yeah. It's it's all all about that. It stops it. Um, what what big organizations suffer from is not bad ideas, but actually, again, the ability to execute against them. And if it all takes you a year to do anything, well, actually, the idea you had that was probably a good idea by then will be a bad idea because somebody's already done it already. So I think it that product market fit that startups are always trying to find. Banks need to develop the same muscle memory, mm-hmm. the muscle skills of hey, you know, they're really good at that when it comes to financial instruments and products and tweaking products and APRs and, you know, teaser rates and these things. But actually, when we're talking about the fundamentally, you know, financial services as a service, right? When we start talking about the services, the ownership of products, not just the buying of products, um, then actually, I think it's a whole, it's a whole new skill set that they really need to, they really need to understand it. I mean, you've had you've named a couple of the clients that you've worked on in the past. You know, something that I find really interesting working as a consultant or advisor myself is the ability to work across different product categories, and as you pointed out for for yourself, across different geographies where you know both the regulatory um, framework as well as sort of like consumer. Uh, consumer needs, consumer habits can be quite different. You mentioned Saudi Arabia. I actually work with a client there as well. And as I'm sure you know, like radically different for a lot of reasons. I mean, what are some of the most interesting client projects that you've had a chance to work on? Is there something that you like learned in the course of working in um, a different geography or a different product group that you found surprising? Yeah, I, you know, I think we were very lucky when we started and where we started to a certain degree. I mean, if you look at the um, if you look at the regulatory change that sort of came out of, um, you know, the the UK uh, around about when we were founded, you know, like actually from 2010 to 2016, the foundations were we were really being laid down for a, a fundamentally different way of operating in this market, uh, and that was that was amazing because you sort of turn up to the party and people have already kind of figured out how the music works and the lighting. And, you know, so these things were moving forwards and there's a lot to be said, you know, the FinTech scene wouldn't exist globally without those things being done. Uh, And it's interesting when you sort of, you recognize the, uh, you recognize the variables that went into that market. Actually, really that movie has been repeated in, you know, Hong Kong with HKMA and the virtual banking licenses. And, and that led to us being able to do mocks. And that's great with Standard Chartered. Same with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And that allowed us to do Trust Bank over in Singapore. So actually, wherever there's kind of a shift in the regulatory space, essentially leaves opportunities in the market. Uh, you know, we've seen it over in the US and that's great. Seeing it in the Middle East with everything that's happening in Saudi and Sama and um, I mean, everybody talks about the regulator again, like they're, you know, the bad guys. And and typically, you know, if you leave engaging anybody with anything, whether it's a global regulator, whether it's your mum, whether it's like your best friend, like if you leave it to the last minute, they're probably not going to engage with you in the way that you would do if you work with them all the way through the process. Um, and what I found both when I was in a big bank or now, you know, engaging with regulators around the world 
Um, they're just human beings. And if you engage with them with the intent to solve a problem for consumers in their market, they're all ears. Uh, like, I really don't see a, see the issue. But so much of maybe operating in any geo is communicating effectively. Um, and actually, whether it's communicating with your stakeholders, communicating with the regulator, the government, the, the startup ecosystem, you know, everywhere, um, getting that right is probably quite critical to to making that happen i mean you can get into the specifics of like well how does you know open banking underpin you know the fintech ecosystem or you know does open data in australia mean something different to open banking in singapore you know and it's like the answer is yes like the variables of all of these things are different and if i'm honest with you that's what makes it really exciting like we've been incredibly privileged to do to a point jobs to be done in sub-saharan africa or nebraska when it was like minus 35 or you know, turning up to Hong Kong and not knowing anything about the banking system in Hong Kong to then figuring out really what the problem was to, you know, delivering the, I think it's the number one downloaded app in Hong Kong, right? So I find like if you have the right people, you figure out the right way. Um, and so much of that is about how you approach the people around you rather than dictating to them exactly the way it's going to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as you just pointed out, taking the time to understand what the facts on the ground are, right? I mean, I this is this is always something, you know, that strikes me having spent a lot of time in Mexico um and running a small business there and seeing you know, I'm trying to say this in a nice way, but seeing some people talk about um certain countries in Latin or talk about Mexico who maybe, you know, have read about it but haven't actually like experienced some of the challenges. And it's like Oh, well, half of Mexico's unbanked. Easy. We'll just make a neobank and problem solved. And it's like, well, no, there's like there's specific underlying um both sort of like government tax regulatory reasons as well as like cultural uh preference reasons why this is the case. And until you understand those and build a product that incorporates those facts on the ground, like you're not you're not particularly likely to be successful. Yeah. Well, and, and I think both um, both literally and culturally, you know, and, and probably one leads to the other to a certain degree. I mean, whether it's um, whether it's people in Mexico, Singapore or whether you're just talking about people in big incumbent organizations. Do you know, what I mean, it's like I, I think there's a lot to be said for having kind of walked in people's shoes. Mm -hmm. You have a I, I'm not saying people should go and pretend to be Mexican or pretend to be Singaporean or whatever. You know, I'm saying like actually you sort of need to develop the the empathy muscle mm -hmm. for actually how hard it is. The We say with jobs to be done, it's like really what you're trying to connect with is the the brutal realities of day-to-day -day lives um, for a customer. But that goes for the brutal realities. I mean, me and you worked in a big bank before, right? It's not easy. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it, not it is a, not. Um, it is not easy. <laughs> and and it's not. It's not like they're like I've got no ideas. Like, I have no idea what to do. Like maybe should we go to the pub? And it's like it's like they're not. They're not wasting time and effort or money purposefully. It's um, it's much more complex, much more of a nuanced thing when you've got an organization that's geared towards stopping things happen versus making things happen. And and I, we always kind of look at, uh, I mean, jobs to be done as a methodology. We can't take credit for that. That's um, Clayton Christensen, super, super smart guy. He wrote a great book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which basically is, you know, summarized really badly i'm sure somebody will get in touch and go that's the you know wrong thesis or whatever but but it's the idea that will startups get to scale before big incumbents learn to innovate um and really when you point this out this challenge to people 
the answer isn't how do I learn to innovate? It's how do I learn from other people? Like actually, what can the big banks learn from fintech and what can fintech learn from big banks? Because ultimately, you're both skating towards the same place. You've just got to have a, a level of um, confidence in what you do well and uh, an ability to admit what you're not great at. Uh, and it goes back to that point, you know, admitting the first step is you don't know or there's a problem. Like, actually, if you can, if fintechs can really get that regulation is difficult, guys, like, you know, you can't just like put it off for next quarter. This stuff's hard. And like big incumbent banks are like, yeah, getting stuff into people's hands cheaply. That's important, you know, or our core infrastructure costing four billion pounds or whatever. That's a problem. You know, that's going to be a problem at some point. And I think it's just being super practical about it. Now, the reality is, if you run an organization that's got 400,000 people in it and you're operating in 60 countries, solving that problem is difficult. But at least if you admit it, you're all focused on the right problem. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the extreme advantages that incumbents have is I mean, to be repetitive, they're incumbents. They have a functioning business, revenue, earnings, cash flow, profitability. So in a sense, you know, they have uh, the luxury, I suppose, of being able to sit back and watch some of these things develop, you know, whether it's something like buy now, pay later, or, uh, you know, peer-to-peer payments or, you know, crypto or whatever. And, you know, they don't have to react immediately you know they have in a sense the luxury of time and can say is this you know is this something that is meeting a real consumer need where there's truly product market fit uh how are regulators going to react to this product that maybe doesn't neatly fit in an existing box which was the case with BNPL and in most jurisdictions and then make a decision you know once they've sort of seen it develop a little bit to say hey you know is this somewhere we want to play, do we think we can do it effectively? Or, you know, is the business model or regulatory risk or whatever, you know, not match our appetite at this moment. And for the for startups who are building those new products or new innovations, they do not have the luxury of time, right? If they're yeah. not profitable, if they're venture funded, they have to move quickly and try to establish that product market fit, that business model to continue to exist. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a difficult one though, isn't it? Because essentially the internet is a an enabler or a disabler. Um, you know, you've got this podcast. This podcast is super successful, right? We've got a podcast. It's super successful, right? The, you know, roll back like thirty years, and like we're not taking on the BBC. Like that's or you know the Telegraph or the Times. Like are you crazy? Like you need people and distribution and all, like the internet actually is a is a bizarre level of, I mean, for good reasons and bad reasons, because I mean, there is a load of content out there, but not all of it is great, you know? So, so actually the tail is really, really long on those things, but actually, you know, brands and bank brands now don't have the luxury of uh, demanding the same level of nostalgic uh, place in society that they had before, because we're not wandering into these beautiful marble halls and, you know, lovely briefcase gentlemen with, you know, great degrees from wherever, you know, like the, the world is, is flatter. Uh, I'm not saying it's flat earth, by the way, don't anybody panic and write in on that one as well, but it's, do you know what I mean? It's like, actually, when we talk about democratization, actually the, my access to the internet is very similar to your access to the internet is very similar to anybody's. And therefore the services manifest themselves in a really similar way. And that, that really is like the, almost a problem with actually how people look at 
financial services digitally, which is it's kind of a manifestation of the previous form factor. It's a manifestation of the the world that they they came up in, you know, and actually that uh, this is how I made things successful. And therefore, my frame of reference of product manufacturing, you know, financial instrument creation and then distribution through my my channels, through my branches or telephony or, you know, web or mobile or whatever. Um, but digital is not a is not a distribution channel. It's it's something more than that. You know, the the virtues of it, the the traits of it are something unique. And, and therefore the services, the capabilities we need to build for that the for that capability is different. Um and I, I think if you if you get people into a philosophical debate around actually, well, this is this is more about creating a traditional value service executed digitally than it is does my features and functionality in my app meet parity with the market then it's a very different prospect what you're aiming at is something very different and, and i think um i mean we always i would say is like you know if you pick up your phone and look at any any your best used apps they are all services they're all doing a thing you know like whether it's uber or whether it's Amazon, or whether it's Deliveroo, or whether it's, uh, you know, like, whatever, like, they're all democratizing the service that somebody who was higher net worth used to have that you have now. So like, uh, Deliveroo is like a private chef for the mass market, you know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I could get sushi delivered to my house, there's no way I could make sushi, like Uber is a chauffeur for the mass market, right? You know, they're bringing a service and traversing the physical and digital world really effectively. Airbnb theoretically is a, you know, second home for the mass market. Um, But the evolution that we've seen with financial services is actually dumbing down to financial education is at the lowest level it's ever been, despite the internet being everything and everybody having access to it. But now we're being forced to make decisions on our own behalf by basically picking from a list of three things because that's how people get around whether it's advice or guidance you know uh, like i say fundamentally we've gone from a service and a human with empathy interacting with customers to really distill down incredibly complex topics to self-serving and hoping you get the best out of it and it's like no wonder we're in a cost of living challenge no wonder we've got all of these problems globally like People don't get financial services. And I mean, a lot of people that work in financial services don't get financial services, but most normal people don't at all. So it's we're at a funny place, I think. You know, oh. uh, there's a, on the flip, there's some great opportunities, right? But it leaves the customers very much wanting for more. I mean, I think there are at least two different things intersecting. You know, one that you pointed out, which is the move from you know, call it like human interaction, oldie-timey relationship banking is is the phrase that uh, D- Director Chopra favors in the U.S. to this self-service, you know, go on Credit Karma and like pick something off this list and that's, you know, what you're going to do. Um, you know, that's certainly, I think, a, a, a major component of it. And, and the second, <clears throat> I would argue, is, is, you know, misaligned incentives. The products that drive the most revenue and the most profitability you know, it, it are the ones that, you know, to be blunt, you know, extract that from the customers who are using it, right? So it's, you know, it's credit cards, loans, uh, brokerage account, but you're sort of Robinhood brokerage where you're profiting when the user is losing by actively trading these kind of things. And those two things together, you know, it, it, it 
ideally, we would have a system that's win-win, the customer wins and the financial institution wins. I think all too often in practice, it's closer to zero sum, right? The bank or FI wins when the customer loses. loses. Yeah, which is yeah, not not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and and I think that gets to a, a really interesting conversation about you know what does a digital organization what what are the sort of changes that come about because of that? Because I mean, anywhere where you see, and I completely agree with you, you know, in those punitive charges for um, being a customer. I mean, the, the the challenge with that to a certain degree is like it's very at odds with the marketing of most organizations. And I mean, look, this isn't just big bank bashing. This is like a lot of the fintechs, you know, uh, market on, you know, being by your side or we're like, we're here for you or like, you know, you can trust us. But, but then if your business model is predicated on, you know, predatory processes, then it's not a great place to be. But, but I think that's because of, we haven't really seen a great level of evolution in financial instruments. Yeah, most people's effort has been in putting money into saving money. You know, digital has been invested in to take, you know, people, paper, premises, you know, I'm sure there's a few other P's I'm forgetting, but, you know, like they're, they're doing it for the wrong type of ROI. You know, they're, they're not doing it to increase the the experience, to change the business model, to, yes, be on, really be on your side in terms of you winning. Um but that's where I, I actually think there is a there is a massive gap still in the market. You know, a lot of people are saying sort of fintech's sort of done and, you know, the investment cycle's over. And, you know, can we really take another retail bank or another commercial bank or whatever? But the fundamental business models of banking needs to shift beyond just net interest margin and, you know, some fees here and that for moving money around the world. Because actually now we're at an advancement from a technological perspective where we can do so much more. And I feel like those services, if you offer people the ability to pay for services that would net benefit them as all people, as in you're making their money make money for them. You know, this is something that is, you know, generally reserved for the, you know, the rich uh, in that world. But whatever level of value maximization that you can bring about for somebody, like, why is that something that isn't democratized in the same way as, look, I can get a... I can get a Michelin star hamburger delivered to my hotel later on tonight, but I can't, I can't get somebody to just run my banking for me. Like that's just weird. Do you know what I mean? Like algorithms are driving cars and landing planes. You know what I mean? Like, why am I going into my overdraft when I've got savings? You know what I mean? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense other than because that's how banks make money. Right. So, yeah. so if you, if you change that, then, you know, I think we get to a, a better place quite quickly. I could talk about this all day, but there was at least one other section I wanted to get to, which was around 11FS's thought leadership in the space. I mean, I have, you know, a lot of businesses, a lot of company leaders come up to me and and say, you know, they want to have a better presence on, I don't know if we're still calling it Twitter or X or whatever, or LinkedIn or on, a, you know, at conferences, you know, a lot of companies aspire to do this, but frankly, I find that very few actually do a good job of it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the strategy and tax tactics you used at 11FS to establish credibility in the space and to scale your audience? Yeah, I mean, it was a it's a difficult one because uh, I don't think it's just one thing. And, and yeah, you know this, yeah. Jason, from yeah, create, yeah. creating content and like you know, big fan of the stuff that you guys do, and you know the the content you've you've authored and I've, I've read is is always really high caliber. It, it's a 
it's not something you can do if it's just your job. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the the thing that we try to do with 11FS is hire people who are like a bit weird. Like you're, you've got to be like really passionate about the thing. And if you're really passionate about the thing, you're, that has an element of like virality in your brain. Do you know what I mean? It's like this new company's done this thing. I have to tell everybody about it do you know what i mean because it's so awesome so and actually it doesn't matter if you're a, an audio engineer or a product person or a researcher or whatever like if you're passionate about something you need to have the skill set to convey you know passionately conveying that to other people in fact it's like one of only four really important interview questions that we do for somebody at 11fs is like tell me about something you're passionate about and and like if you can do that you can do anything you know so our you know our problem when we started the business back in 2016 was like people were making financial services content that we were really excited about sound really boring you know it was like it was radio 2 and it was the ft and and like you know don't get me wrong there's some super super smart people there but we wanted to be like pop gear and loose women but for fintech Uh, and that's really what we've tried to sort of stay on point for which is look it's got to be as entertaining as it is informative because essentially, like, you know, people listening to this podcast now are doing it when you're walking your dog or like you're you might be like heading into work or whatever. And if actually you have to keep rewinding it every 15 seconds to be like, what was that intricacy or what did that acronym mean? Then, you know, actually that for us has been the, you know, the secret recipe is just make it fun. And, and that, that's not just for the listener. It's about you. Like we've done God like maybe 900 episodes of our podcast like there's no way i could have done that if it was boring like there's no way i could have done it if like it felt like a job every time i was doing it you know um but equally it's probably been the most accidental success point for 11fs as a company like where our brand is so much bigger than our company in terms of the the weight that we carry and you know we know we've got ceos of banks and you know heads of regulators tuning in every week and that's nice because it gives you a bit of a shot in the arm. Uh, we, we sort of said um, the platforms that we build, whether it's the events or the podcast or whatever, are not ours. They're for other people. Um, and actually what we try and do is shine spotlights on people who we think are doing amazing things around the world. Uh, I'm very much not religious, but I do believe in karma. Uh, I think the more good you do for the community, I think the more good happens uh and when we sort of point to a really big vision about changing the fabric of financial services it's something that little old us on our own are not going to do but actually for all of the things that we've talked about today i mean if you can connect with one person and you know inspire somebody somewhere to make a change within their organization or go start a business and you know try and put a dent in the industry then that for me is where you know we won't on our own achieve our vision but I think as a community, as, a, as an entirety, I think we're all moving the industry forward. And that that really is a, I mean, that's why you get out of bed, right? It's not the, uh, it's not to do some podcasts or to like do some bank stuff. It's um, fundamentally to try and move the agenda forward. Yeah, I mean, uh, all excellent points. If, you know, if I thought of doing these podcasts or or sitting down to to write content, write the newsletter, if it was purely a job, it would probably be somewhat torturous. Obviously, I yeah. <laughs> probably obviously I actually really enjoy it and, and and am enthusiastic about you know the the topics that I read about, talk about, write about. 
Um, you know, I think another piece in addition to making it fun, or this might be sort of a, a different way of saying the same thing, is making it accessible. I mean, right? I, you know, whatever I have to tell people my origin story, I'm like, I didn't, I didn't study finance. I didn't, you know, I didn't study economics. You know, I, I came into this industry from a marketing background, and all of the, you know, bank stuff. You know, we're talking about NIM and broker deposits and like regulation. Like I've learned that as a function of being like intellectually interested, curious, but but it needs to be accessible and consumable in a way, you know, talking only, and I'm very guilty of this sometimes, but talking only in acronyms or, you know, assuming a certain level of knowledge and not pausing to explain the context or background does make it, you know, more difficult for for people who may be newer to the industry to to access and understand what you're talking about well it's it's funny isn't it i mean people in the industry like to create the illusion of it being incredibly complex because of the acronyms that they use almost um obfuscation of of like what you do as an as a, as a role i mean it, it's it's funny actually the the principles we deploy for creating content and and i'm i'm sort of more giving away the kernel's recipe here at this stage in terms of uh, you know what we're talking about ironically there are 11 herbs and spices in the uh, the kfc recipe so as as, as it goes it's not a bad metaphor but but what we sort of aim for uh with our content but actually i mean i, I say the same things to like the people coming into our ventures business like the meetings you have with clients the like the conversation you have in the lift like the the podcast whatever we aim for it being provocative authoritative and human uh, and and to your point it's like that human part is so critical because if you don't just talk like people it just becomes so much harder work for everybody to you know interpret really what it is that you're you're talking about we aim for hey the ceo can listen to this all the way to the intern and actually they need to get something from it um the authoritative piece is like we only try and talk about stuff that we know about because who wants to listen to a bunch of people just pontificate about the future and you know things that you don't have a something in and then the um the provocative piece is really interesting because actually what often i've i've seen and at, look, having worked at a big bank and a big management consultancy and all of these different places you find a lot of people just stating the bloody obvious you know and actually what all you're doing is synthesizing what has been done before and not actually adding any value to it so you've got to have some form of provocation whether it's the debate that you bring about or the point of view that you try and create with things because if you're just stating what everybody else is stating then fundamentally what value are you adding to the community and and really that's the critical point right you you want to challenge people's assumptions you want to challenge people's beliefs uh, beliefs not not because you want to be contrary to the to the market but but because fundamentally everybody just thinking the same way is doesn't get us to different outcomes and and ultimately that doesn't lead to you know very productive community and it doesn't lead to great outcomes for customers as well so yeah i mean that that's always been a you know a fun role but it has been weird i have to say i mean we we do a live events where we'll record a podcast in front of people and uh i was always the kid who didn't want to have a birthday party because i was scared people wouldn't turn up but now you know 300 400 people turn up to watch us record fintech insider and it's it's just a good party afterwards yeah. as well. So it's just, just weird. Like I, if I knew what we were doing, Jason, I'd do it more, but I've no idea what it is. So, you know, I just don't want to mess it up. I feel the same way. It's like, well, you know, 
whatever I'm doing seems to be working. So like, I'm just going to try to keep doing it and hopefully it, uh, it yep. keeps, hopefully it keeps working. I think we have time for, for one more, which, I mean, you referenced the, the somewhat, you know, unusual, I mean, not just year, but really couple of years between the you know buckets of VC money in 2020, 2021, and then, um, you know, bank failures in the first half of this year. Um, from where you sit, you know, the clients you work with, the people you talk to, you know, any thoughts about where banking and fintech are heading in as we go into 2024? Yeah, I'd say um, it has been a really weird year. And, and I think for, for everybody, um, yeah. I'd say the the signs of recovery are there and, and not uh, we should say not all of the things that have happened this year have been have been bad like uh bizarrely like some of the some of the weirdest things that i'd say, i'd point to and go well that was weird but like actually quite amazing was like seeing like the bank of england the fca and the government work a weekend in order to make sure that hsbc's acquisition of silicon valley bank went through and went through perfectly it's like can you imagine like that happening like six years ago do you know what i mean it's just like so the industry can do amazing things when it's properly motivated to to make it happen um i'd say the you know the recovery definitely has been slow um as ever happens within a market when you know something like Silicon valley bank credit suisse you know all the changes that we've seen there really you get to a point and it's weird again both of us being in a, in a big bank you know witnessing 2008 from inside a bank uh suddenly like nobody there's like two guys in the whole business who can sign off doing anything over like fifty thousand pounds which basically means nobody can do anything you know um but there's a there's a strange process to that though because the banks don't say no they just sort of slow down um so i i'd sort of say the the operating metronome of businesses almost became like a I don't know, probably like a bear going into hibernation. The heartbeat was definitely a lot slower for, for H1. What I'm witnessing, though, I mean, particularly when you look at the European market and the Saudi Arabian market, the Middle East more broadly, uh, people playing catch up in a major way. And and actually, the, the things that we're doing now are fascinating because we've just got a lot of big banks coming and questioning what their purpose really is, um, mm. which is really exciting because it kind of means they're getting to a point where they'll start doing really innovative stuff. Um, I think the US market, sadly, I think is probably about six months behind us with regards to a recovery. Uh, you know, big US banks, I still think are going through a lot of pain with the changes that we've seen and the problems that have been, you know, coming out. Um, but they'll get there. You know, I think they'll get there in, in the the changes. Bizarrely, Canadian market seems to be waking up as well. So uh, uh, I, I feel like all around the world, the conditions are slightly differently. The opportunities are slightly differently, but people's desire to make changes is, is unanimously consistent in that way as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to probably putting an end to 2023 and, and getting into 2024 and everything that it holds. But uh, in the meantime, we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Eh? yeah. Well, we will have to check in with you in 2024 and see where we are. Uh, but Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. David, thank you so much for joining us. For folks who want to learn more about 11FS and keep up with all the great content that you guys put out, where can they find you? Yeah, head over to 11FS.com. Uh, if you want to check out our podcast, it's Fintech Insider. Uh, if you want to connect with me, I'm just predominantly lurking on LinkedIn these days. So you'll find me over there. All right. Sounds good. Until next time. <laughs>